Imagine the most popular heroic story ever written, one which spans three millennia and goes to the very heart of the largest religion in the world, but which now has almost entirely devolved into myth, ignored and avoided by the establishment, shunned and unexplored by archaeologists and historians, consigned to the back rooms of academic study, Yet everyone knows the characters and the plot. The tales of King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table. But no one knows the reality, or do they? Suppose everything you thought you knew about King Arthur was invented by an invading foreign power unsympathetic to the truth and seeking to subvert and overthrow a long and ancient existing regime. Suppose the incredible truth was a story so strong and so mysterious that it could support an entire nation through its truly darkest hours and perhaps reinvent the same nation for a new millennium. Well, the Polychronicon is a symphony of history, the real history and archaeology involved in this very topic, with none other than one of my favorite authors and researchers, Mark Ollie. You're in for a heck of a ride today. Buckle up and prepare to blast off. Come blast off in my time machine. Third eye feeling like a knee visine. Blast off. Blast off. Blast off, blast off, come blast off in my time machine, third eye feeling like a knee vaccine, blast off, blast off, blast off, blast off. Blast off on an epic episode of the Hyper Anomalous Esoteric Research Organization podcast, aka Hero Paranormal, Broadcasting from just south of the old Sherman Ranch in the Uinta Basin of Utah, my name is Ryan, the anomalous ambassador of the airwaves, bringing you an epic episode today. We have Mark Ollie discussing the Polychronicon. This is the real history and archaeology, not just the invention of creative minds, and it reveals incidents and characters as they really were listed in chronological order, leaving the impression that Britain has always been a very different place to the one painted by popular history. Merlin becomes one of an ancient line of Pythagorean scholars and political visionaries, Joseph of Arimathea, a religious dissident fleeing persecution and death to far-off foreign shores. Arthur, a hardened womanizing battle leader who loses his entire family and culture to war, and eventually natural disaster. For the first time ever, the Saxons, Danes, and Vikings are placed into an Arthurian context. Associated legends are examined, international sources investigated, completing missing developments that led to the medieval legends we now know so well. Revealing the real and surprising geography of Arthur's Britain and the Old North. If you want the whole truth about Arthur, the Holy Grail, Camelot, Excalibur, the Round Table, Heroic Knights, 
Guinevere, the matter of Britain, and where this all took place? You are going to want to hear this. And the Polychronicon is the book for you. It is authored by Mark Ollie. I've discussed things with Mark before. He's from one of my favorite independent publishers, and he knows what he's talking about. Before we get to all that, though, if you have not subscribed to Hero Paranormal on Patreon, please go to Patreon, look for Hero Paranormal, and subscribe. There is a ton of content behind the paywall, and it is what helps keep the episodes coming. You can also get behind the paywall via Podbean at HeroParanormal.com. So let's get to it. We have a lot that's going to come out and something that is going to come out for the first time, which has never come out before. And that is the fact that our guest has a literal, personal reason why he has done so much investigative work and research on this subject. It's going to blow your minds. It's pretty amazing. A true honor and a pleasure. Mark Ollie, welcome to the Hero Paranormal Podcast. Hello, nice to be here. Oh, it's I'm, great. I'm... I'm sorry we had quite a few technical difficulties on this. Uh, it's <laughs> taken us almost a half an hour to finally connect, but it's going to be worth it. I am just mesmerized by your new book, The Poly, oh, Polychronicon, and I'm 100% a believer in everything that it seems that modern historians and archaeologists and the like, they seem to just shrug off. They they don't seem to take this as seriously as it should be taken. What? Well, uh huh. I was going to say the key the key to it really for me was just to put everything in chronological order. It's kind of as soon as you do that, you suddenly kind of make sense of it all. You know, instead of just sort of toe dipping from one period of time to another. Um, I, I don't think anybody's ever done that before, surprisingly. It's fascinating because, you know, a lot of people in high places believe in the reality that this all took place. And it's only those, I guess, mainstream, his, the, the mainstream historians are not lending credence to a lot of what has taken place. And a lot took place in your particular neck of the woods that a lot of people believe in. What what started you on this path? Um, back in 1977, I made a, a cine film, uh, a Super 8 millimeter jobby, uh, when I was a teenager for a local cine society. Um, and I did the, started the research then. Um, obviously, I was you know working from medieval material. Uh, but then I just thought, you know what, I, I reckon there's more to it than this. And as soon as I started getting into that... Here we are 45 years later with the book finally out. All, all those years of research, it's been a long journey. I've met lots of people, talked to loads of people, world experts. Um, obviously, King Arthur, you know, you, you kind of have to be in this country, really, to, to have it as a part of your psyche, as it were, because this is where it all comes from. Um, and again, like you say, it's moved. You know, geographically, it's kind of moved around the country. Scotland want it. You know, Lancashire and Cumbria want it. Wales wants it, the Midlands want it, down south they definitely want it, you know, um, Cornwall and what have you. Um, at the end of the day, where I've ended up, I've ended up encompassing most of that sort of western side of Britain, but primarily, 
primarily it's North Wales. If you get back to the oldest sources, um, everybody, everybody will agree that that is really where the, the driving force, if you like, for Arthur is coming from. Um, so again, once you've got that, uh, once you've got the time scale, the next thing is the geography. So when you start getting the geography, it, it certainly starts to become, you know, to make sense of itself. Um, less of a legend, more of a reality, which I think is, is the driving force behind the book. And I absolutely love the name, the Polychronicon. How did you come up with that name? I haven't seen that anywhere. Well, I mean, the obvious thing was, what a fantastic thing to stick on a book because nobody else has got it. So, I mean, there's 300 <laughs> King Arthur books a, a year coming out worldwide. So, trying to get an original title, nigh on impossible. Well, I, I only live about 20 miles away from a place called Chester. And in the 1300s, there was this little monk sat there writing a history of the world, actually, uh, in Chester. Uh, and he called it the Polychronicon. In his case, it was the Polychronicon of Ranulf Higdon. Um, but that particular book was a chronological polychronicon order of history for his time. And it included a massive section on Arthur, because obviously Chester's on the Welsh border. Um, so he had all that material to go at. So he included it. He put it all in. So here I am sort of 800 years later, seven or 800 years later, thinking, go on, let's do it again. <laughs> you know, there's a bloke down the road did it all that time ago, so I'm going to do it again. So... This is not an entire history of the world, but it's a history of an awful lot of stuff that affects the world, you know. So it's kind of in the same league to some extent. Um, it's the modern version, you know. He did it, you know, he did it sort of at the turn of the previous millennium. So I'm doing it at the turn of this millennium. That's kind of the inspiration. What I like is that it, it, it's the best story, absolutely. It's, it's got it all. Persecution, death, foreign yeah. shores, and... This this is, as, as I often am reminded, m many of the most creative minds and most of the elites believe this is real history and archaeology and not just an invention of myth. Why is it that this has been, I won't say ignored because it's very real, it, it, it has permeated into almost every culture and society, but why is it that mainstream historians have shrugged this off? I think there's two directions there. One direction is I don't think they wanted the general masses, kind of the, the hordes, if you like, uh, knowing where the reality was, knowing where the real places were. Because there's, there's always the danger that, you know, these places are going to get trampled or robbed or whatever. So over the centuries, there's been a, a, a very great measure of protectiveness over that which with the technology, the archaeology and everything we've got now, it's, that's pretty much irrelevant because if it's out there, we're going to find it sooner or later. Um, but in ages gone by, they were trying to be protective. And then the second aspect to it, a lot of what the reality, the truth of the stories contain um, could be used as a threat or could undermine what pr various previous regimes um, have set up as their... Uh, their mandate, if you like. So you've kind of got people coming in. I mean, people like the, the Romans, the Normans, the Danes, you know, the Saxons, everybody sort of piling in there. They've all got their own agenda. And what they've tended to do is take powerful material and uh, repurpose it, you know, and reuse it and, and change it. You see a lot of that in the Arthurian material in, in the medieval period. And thereafter, you know, there's... Um, there's an awful lot at stake here. So if you're handling this material, it's known as the matter of Britain, 
um, you've got to be really careful with how you do it. So I've tried in the book, I mean, I've tried to nail everything as best I can, stick strictly to the historical facts, get it in the right order, get it in the right place, and then the entire of the last section, you're going through the book thinking, hang on a minute, he's not put anything in here, there's no footnotes, there's no listed appendix or anything, until all of a sudden you get to the entire of the last chapter, and it's everything. You know, it's all the books, all the research material, everything you could possibly get your hands on. So as a springboard, it's a great place to start with all the online resources now. You know, if you don't know something exists, you're not going to be able to find it. But if you buy this book, you've got probably about two or three hundred somethings at the back that you can go and look up. And that, that'll set the whole thing afire again. People will go off and discover more. You know, go find it. Don't, you know, take the Polychronicon as a starting point uh, rather than an end in itself. Yes, and you have truly in, done a lot of research here. It's uh, it's mind-boggling, really. Uh, 488 pages is no joke. You've got a lot of information here, and I think for the first time ever, you've put it in a context that is super entertaining. And you uh, let, let's get into the investigation and the research and explain to listeners yeah. the whole truth about Arthur, the Holy Grail, Camelot, Excalibur, and the whole the whole thing. Okay, yeah, fire away. Pick, pick, pick one of those topics, and we, you know, whichever one you feel they'll be the most interested in, I can, I can certainly comment on. So go on, throw something at me. Yes, <laughs> I'm, always, I'm always wildly entertained by the fact that King Arthur's life is very romanticized. It is considered something like, you know, he had a really great life, but in reality, it was actually quite difficult and uh, fraught with trouble, and, and also... Um, Guinevere is oftentimes something I thought was was his wife, but she was not his first wife, was she? No, no. Um, what you're dealing with, this is where you got to contextualize it. What you're dealing with here is is basically a dark age battle leader. He's always referred to as Duxbalurum or Duke of Battles. So in actual fact, he's not a king. Chances are the king that was um, controlling him, if you like, was Melgrin Gwynedd, who was the king of Wales at that time. So he's just a prominent warrior. He's like the Welsh equivalent to Beowulf or any of the other, you know, great warriors who we remember. So that once you understand that, that he's, he's not He's not like a divine ruler. You know, he's not some person that lives in this magical, spiritual bubble. Uh, he's very gritty. He's very down-to-earth. Uh, yes, he has three wives in all. Um, the first wife, Squire, who produces Mordred, um, and he sort of puts them quietly away because that's his teenage sweetheart or whatever. So they disappear, and, of course, Mordred grows to hate him. Um, and that's his undoing at the Battle of Camlan. It's Mordred that kills him. Um, he then goes off and runs off with this lady from um, Ruthin, who is connected to another family who are connected, again, to Gwyer. So they're, not, they're no fans of Arthur, but he runs off with this lady and ends up killing another chieftain. And that doesn't go down very well, so that doesn't amount to a whole, whole sack of beans. But by this point, he's producing children. He's producing quite a few of them. Uh, then all of a sudden, he gets, towards the end, he gets this necessity to win over the Picts. Now, the Picts are massive. They're an enormous military force at this point, at the end of the Roman era. And Guinevere is a Pictish queen. That's what she is. So in order to win them over, he has this alliance, this marriage, if you like, with Guinevere at the end. But by the time he reached this point, he's, he's got seven sons and quite a few daughters. And quite a lot of his sons don't live past the end of Arthur's life. In fact, by the time he kills Mordred face-to-face, -face, Mordred is the last one. 
so for various reasons, him, his family, you know, his descendants who then become non-existent, they're, they're all in this Iron Age battle setting where they're, they're warring, they're waging war. And he wasn't, you know, he was a hardened, womanizing battle leader, you know, at a time when, uh, you know, if you didn't rule by force, then you basically didn't rule. So when you start getting into it, when you start looking at his life story, it's, it's boy, is it gritty. You know, it's, it's a lot harder than the medieval legend. It's not in any way romantic. You know, you can't really, you know, go down the knights in shining armor route. Uh, and the same is true of a lot of the other, you know, major characters. Um, you know, all his knights were warriors, you know, basically. Knights is a Roman term that made it into Anglo-Saxon. Uh, but it just means a, a young, heroic youth. That's all it means. So that's his war band, you know. Um, Merlin ends up being pretty much the last of the old order of Druids before Druidry begins to die out. Um, and he'd really like to see everything going back to being Roman again. But there are several Merlins, in actual fact. There are, there are about, um, about six of them in all. So the one that's there at the beginning of Arthur's reign is not the same Merlin that's there at his demise at the end. There's two of them. But the, the one there at the beginning of his reign, he's really the last of his kind. Um, and then when you start looking into the Holy Grail and you start looking into how that got over here, how Christianity got into into Britain, uh, the first church in the world was planted here by Joseph of Arimathea, uh, who is a religious dissident fleeing persecution, you know what I mean? The Romans want his head on a spike. You know, they really don't like him. So he tries to get as far away as he possibly can from the Romans and he finishes up here, bringing with him a lot of the artifacts that you then find being searched for by Arthur and his knights. You know, the Grail legend is born, you know, um, 500 years before the time of Arthur. Um, and when you start looking at it chronologically, when you start looking at all these different characters and putting them in context, wow, it's, it's an amazing story, and it's very modern, as you say. It moves quickly, it's fast, it's entertaining, there's surprises around every corner. You know, it, it needs to be made into a movie. <laughs> it really does. It really does. Yeah. And, you know, the Holy Grail is is such an important item in various traditions. And it's been described as so many different things, a cup, a dish, a stone. Yeah. Um, what, in your opinion, is the Holy Grail? Okay, there's, uh, there's actually quite a few of them. I think I got to about 27 different ones uh, that were around at the time of Arthur. So... Uh, basically, the Holy Grail, by defini definition, if you really want to be brutal about this, the brutal definition is it has to be something that was either created at the Last Supper or it has to be something that was created at the crucifixion. And then it becomes a grail. Then it becomes something connected to Christ that you can go off and search for. Uh, holy. Exactly. Um, and then you've got this idea that it becomes the Sangral. Sangral is a much later term. It's uh, Proto-Norman. It's actually Viking. Uh, Sang means the, capital T-H-E, the, absolutely the. Grail, in this instance, would be the cup used at the Last Supper. Now, the confusing thing is there's two of them. There's one which is the cup of Christ and the other the cup of the apostles. Both of these cups uh, were in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. And uh, some research done around about, I think it was about 2012, 2013 in Spain. They did some research on two cups there. They got these cups all the way back to the Middle East. And blow me if they didn't go and find the Islamic shipping receipts that actually tell you uh, that the Knights Templar brought them to Spain. You know, they rescued them from the Holy Land and brought them there. So if you're actually looking for two reasonably sensible stone chalices, um, there they are in Spain. 
uh, that's where they are. Uh, so in that sense, in that sense, you need the book to go and find out sort of more details about those. But that, that's where they are. So, I mean, a grail is anything that's used to serve a company. So if you've basically got a bowl of some kind and it's, you know, filled with anything that's derived from grain, so it can be bread or porridge or whatever, and you're flavoring it or you're drinking red wine with it, so you're using wine with it, by definition, that is literally a grail. So by the time you get to medieval times, you know, uh, every, every church has its own grail. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, um, it, it, there you go. It, it's so important to note because it, it's it's something that serves as an important motif. You mentioned the Knights Templar, and mm. um, it, basically various traditions describe the Holy Grail, and it, it's a reality. It's seemingly not met with the same doubt as much of the Arthurian literature. And so I want to uh, kind of jump into some more uh, of the myth, and that is, well, or what is purportedly myth, is, is there any reality to the sword in the stone? Yes, I can say there is. Um, A lot of what you find in the Arthurian myths are survivals from much earlier traditions. So this is where the archaeological background comes in. So, for example, we know that this idea that you can have a prominent sword, that goes right back into the Bronze Age. You know, they were, they were casting works of art. You know, some of these swords that, that, that we've got archaeologically are just breathtaking. They were still casting those bronze swords right into the AD period. So when you get to the end of what is effectively the, the, the Western Roman Empire, around about 400, 500 AD, they were still casting them in bronze. So you can imagine it, you know, there's some bloke with two halves of a, of a mould, and the mould is made of stone, and they put the mould together, they strap it all up, they pour the bronze into the top. When you split the mould and the mould fall, falls in half, that you have to get hold of that sword and pull it out. So what's happening is you're pulling the sword from the stone. Now, that, in, in Welsh tradition, that's Calderbol. That's the flashing one or the shining one made of bronze. And all the kings in Wales that we know of at that time, in, in the late, later 400s, they all had a sword of their own. So it's not unusual when he's crowned at 15 for Arthur to have you know, his own bronze sword. But the kicker is, it's useless. If you go into battle at that period with that sword, and you, you, you impact an iron sword with it, the iron sword will just slice straight through it. So it's known that Arthur also had several other weapons made of iron, including possibly a matching pair of iron swords. So that actually becomes Excalibur. That becomes the medieval sword. Um, and the other interesting thing is it's said, uh, there's a guy called Richard of Peterborough writes uh, in his diary in the 1200s, he actually says, Richard the Lionheart sends the iron sword of Arthur into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre as a gift. Uh, so one of these days, I'm sure I'm going to get around to it when I'm doing some research. I'm going to phone up the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and go, have you got a rusty iron bar hanging around in a cupboard somewhere? And you've got no idea what it is. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, bet, I bet you on good money that it's there. You know, it'll, they'll still have it somewhere. They probably just have no idea what it is. Um, so, yeah, I believe he had a couple of iron swords. He had a spear, a shield. He had all the usual accoutrements you find with Iron Age warriors. Uh, they all have names. They're all, you know, go into legend. And they're all in the book. So, um, you know, they, they all have their interesting, uh, interesting stories. Historically, they really do. And there's a lot of evidence supporting a lot of the history, a lot of the weapons. Excalibur is one of them. 
and it was supposedly discovered during the purported exhumation of Arthur's grave at Glastonbury Abbey in 1191. Now, has there been any... Is it true that this was given as a gift of goodwill to uh, the English king, Richard? Um, Richard the Lionheart had a sword, yes. He definitely had a sword that was said to be the sword of Arthur. Um, but that wasn't unusual because there was lots of other swords around then. There was the sword of Constantine the Great. There was the sword of um, Joseph of Arimathea. There were lots of different swords that were all purported to be legendary swords of one kind or another. But the thing about Glastonbury is Glastonbury's built on a culture, the Glastonbury Lake Village culture, that buried people in logs. Uh, and it's an earlier Iron Age culture. So for the monks to dig down so deep and dig a body up, that, or two bodies as it was, buried in a, a log uh, coffin, uh, that's actually not unusual. But then the details after that then start to get really worry, woolly because, you know, there was, there was no hair that, that they could attribute to Guinevere in there. You know, the, the lead cross has got, that, that was found with it has got medieval writing on it, so it's the wrong period. They said it had coats of arms painted on it so they could identify who was in it. Coats of arms are a medieval invention. They didn't even exist, you know, properly. They weren't codified in the 1100s, so they come later. So you've got all these inconsistencies, and then to cap it all, you've got, you know, Edward Longshanks, this really nasty English king that's trying to dominate the Welsh. He's got this problem where the Welsh are saying Arthur are going to come back and lead them to victory against the English. So conveniently, he turns up, you know, with, with his Queen Eleanor, and goes, yes, of course that's Arthur. We have a body. Clearly he's not coming back. You know, and the monks are all wringing their hands in with glee, going, yeah, it's fantastic. We'll earn some money off this. We'll have loads of pilgrims who can rebuild the church. The entire thing, it's one of the very first acknowledged archaeological fakes. Yes, they probably found something, but no, it's not King Arthur. And then when you get into the book, if you really check out the, the sort of the fine print in the book, you get to the section about Glastonbury, and you discover that Glastinyburg is actually Glangothlan in North Wales, where Valley Crucis Abbey is. So again, it's a case of them pinching an earlier site, pinching an earlier legend, uprooting it, and then shifting it down south. And the same thing happens with Tintagel Castle as well. Uh, Geoffrey Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain, there's, there's about ten editions that survive, early editions of that. And then all of a sudden, Robert of Gloucester, his patron's cousin, buys the castle. So... Then all the next set of editions of it have got the castle written in with all the Arthurian stuff attached to it. Well, the story that's attached to Tintagel actually happened in France. It happened in Brittany. So they've, they've imported another story and bolted it on. Um, and you get an awful lot of this. You've just got to be really careful to pay attention to the dates on stories. The biggest bugbear I had putting the book together was trying to make sense of where the material was coming from because so many of the medieval writers were just pulling it from everywhere you know it's coming in from all sorts of angles I mean there's one person even accused Geoffrey Monmouth of making it up you know they actually said he is he is a liar you know he's inventing this I wouldn't go that far I, I think he just he reworks it and it becomes this amazing Walt Disney, you know, super-duper, all-singing-all-dancing legend we've got today. But the early stuff was still there. You know, he, he was borrowing books from the Abbot of Bangor in North Wales, and he was nicking material out of those. Um, so when you start to see where all this is coming from and what dates it's all happening, you've really got to, I hate to say this, but you've really got to tread very carefully with the medieval stuff and throw most of it in the bin, because you need to get past it 
you need to get to stuff before that. And hopefully that's what the book will be. It'll be a signpost to the earlier material. Um, there are some untranslated Welsh documents still knocking around in the Library of Wales. And I'm dying to see what comes out from those. I really am. <laughs> you you have done such a great job of investigating and researching this, Mark. Um, let's get a little biblical on this. And okay. uh, Joseph of... Arimathea was, according to all four Gospels, the man who assumed responsibility for the burial of Jesus after his crucifixion. The historical location of Arimathea is uncertain. Where is it, in your opinion? And let's jump into Joseph. Okay. Um, his name's Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. Um, Arimathea was said, I believe... Uh, to be a village or a territory on the banks of the Sea of Galilee, I believe. Now, that's not in the book, so you, you're really testing my general knowledge with that one. Uh, yes, he was the person, um, I, he was Jesus' uncle, so he had the right to claim the body, and he was the person who had a tomb available in which to put the body. But, as you say, if we get biblical... Um, that body only stayed in the tomb for three days, and then wham, you know, he's back. Hello, I'm back from the dead. Uh, so then you've got these, you know, you've got the shroud, you've got the face cloth, you've got all the embalming stuff and everything associated with that. That would still, broadly speaking, be attached to the crucifixion and what happens around the crucifixion. Um, so that's kind of part of that. It later becomes grail law, um, and the reason it all becomes legendary is you, you've got to contextualize it again and say, well, most people couldn't read Latin or uh, the Judaic scriptures or anything like that. And there was no Bible. You know, we didn't have one over here translated into the common tongue. Uh, in fact, they're in the process of putting the Bible together in Arthur's day. So right through that early medieval, right through the Dark Ages, there wasn't really any reference material for the ordinary person to go to. So the bards, the troubadours, the storytellers, they all get hold of that. They get hold of the story of Joseph. They get hold of everything that's in the Bible. And they spin it. You know, they spin it and, and attach it. Uh, which, to some extent, is what happens in Arthur's court. Because, you know, people come in, tell stories. And Arthur's like, oh, yeah, that's only down the road. We could go and search for that, you know. And that's how they all end up going on quests and things like that. So that, that's perfectly plausible. But no, uh, Joseph Arimathea, very interesting character, um, said to be a knight, uh, which he could have been, uh, said to be a tin miner, uh, so he knew his way to Britain. Maybe, that's possible. Uh, does he go down to Wirral Hill down in Glastonbury? No, he doesn't. The original legends, it's Wirral Hill. And this is where you start getting into the geography and you start uh, looking more towards North Wales. Wirral is literally just off the coast of North Wales. It's a um, um, a sort of a, a promontory, if you like, that juts out with a river above and below it. Uh, that's the hill he lands on, and there's a certain amount of physical evidence to back that up. Um, so it's all in the uh, it's all in the book. That is a particularly important part. When you look at the title and it says Merlin, Joseph, and Arthur, it's it's Merlin is the Druids. So that's like the front end. You need to sort of get to grips with druidry to really comprehend what's going on with merlin uh, and in britain at that time and then you go joseph okay he's he's earlier than merlin but in the timeline you've got to then sort of get to grips with him and understand where the christian background's coming from and then the next one obviously is arthur and he pulls all of those threads together 
So if you follow through on the book, it kind of follows and makes sense. Um, like you say, it makes quite a sensible story. No, Joseph's an amazing character. He's, he's really important. Like I say, he gets here in sort of somewhere around about 52 AD, 53 AD. Uh, there's a king in North Wales called Crudel. Didn't like the look of him. So uh, when he wanders across from the Wirral into North Wales, they grab him, they imprison him. Uh, and he starts to build a church in North Wales when he's released in about 54, 55 AD. Certainly by 56 AD, there's a church here. Um, so this is the funny part of it. If you went and knocked on the Pope's door, if you went to Rome and you kind of tapped on his door and went, what's the oldest church in the world? The Pope would actually say, it's the British Celtic Church because of Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, because the Roman Church, the Roman Catholic Church, is, is after 60 AD. It's 60, 61, 62 AD. And it's Peter and Paul. So actually, we've got stuff going on here, perhaps as long as 10 years before Christianity is being outplanted, if you like, in Rome. Um, and the Celtic Church is very, very different. When you, when you understand how the merger occurs between uh, what is sort of late Roman period Druidry and then early first century Gnostic Christianity, when you push the two together, boy, does it answer lots of questions. It answers so many questions. Uh, probably not the questions the church would want you to have the answers to, uh, but they're there. You know, if you plough through the material in the book, it will give you so much illumination as to what's going on. Yes, and I think it's super important that you mention this before the Christian era arrived, the figures such as Merlin would have been very important in beliefs and magic and spiritualism. And that kind of leads me to my next question. I recently heard on another podcast, and they went into detail about it. Merlin's mother has a bit of an interesting story as well, doesn't she? Well, that depends on who you read. Now, I kind of dodged the issue mm -hmm. because, because the actual story itself is very, very late. So the only material you've got about that legend is medieval, purely medieval. So I kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater. He's, he's definitely connected to um, Carnarvon. There's no doubt about that. That's, that's where he is. He's down there in Wales, South Wales. Uh, and he's definitely got that Iron Age kind of druidic. He's following on all the locations down there. There was Merlin's Oak. There was lots of other things. But his mother was said to be a nun at a local monastery who was impregnated by either a demon or the devil. So mm -hmm. he gives birth miraculously uh, to this magical person, the son without the father, as the legend says, um, who has the ability to see back into the distant past, but also has the ability to see way into the future. So he becomes this amazing, amazing medieval uh, person. But there's a few problems in that, because for a start, they didn't have those kind of monasteries filled with nuns they didn't have them like that in the days of arthur they, they just didn't exist they might have had you know sort of priestesses in hill forts you know secreted around the country but they would not have been what we imagine to be a nun um and also in the past when you, when you get past the medieval legends at no point do they ever say that he never had a father um the father was unknown which made him fatherless so if somebody comes along with, you know, you know, some kind of, you know, 12 volume work on Merlin that, you know, gives you all of his family tree and all the details and it tells you, you know, which demon it was that did it and where they were based and, you know, this is the nunnery where it all took place. And all that. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. I've got to say that. Yeah. I don't think anyone's, I don't think anyone's ever done that. I hope they've never done that. But it is literally medieval 
you know, legend, super legend, if you like. Uh, was he magical? Well, uh, yeah, I think he probably would have been regarded as magical. The Druids tended to follow Pythagoras, Pythagorean teachings, so they were Greek philosophers. Um, and you've only got to take one glance at the Greeks to realise that they were super, super technologically advanced. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, we're talking about a guy here who could stand on a mountaintop and go, there's about to be an eclipse, you know, poof, the whole earth goes black. Boy, are they going to think he's magical. Uh, but he's not. He's a stargazer. He reads, you know, uh, the signs, the seasons. He's a, a scientist. He's an alchemist. You know, he's astrologer as well as an astronomer. You know, he's, he's all these things. He's the complete Greek philosopher containing all of the Celtic traditions, the Celtic stories, and the Celtic knowledge of his day. So he's bound to look weird. He's bound to look extraordinary compared to the average uh, man in the street. And um, if you look at the Celts and you look at the Druids, I mean, they said if you wanted to learn to be a Druid, the Romans actually said you had to come to Britain. So you, I know you've got asterisks of the Gaul and the Druids, you know, Getafix and all that, over in France and all that sort of stuff. But no, if you wanted to train as a Druid, you really you came here to Britain. And the Celts, the hardcore Celts, were here in Britain. So you're looking here at someone who is a human depository of three or 4,000 years of that particular religion and path. Well, that's, that's double the amount of time we've had Christianity. You know, he is, he is really, really old school, and he represents that old world. And I think that's why he's such a significant character, and he's important to the Arthurian story, because he's a linchpin. You know, he is as it were, the past waving goodbye. But, I mean, by the time the Saxons got hold of the Merlins, because there's quite a few of them, they span about two or 300 years, the Saxons just wiped them out. They had no interest in Merlins whatsoever. So by the time you get into the early 600s, you've got the last Merlin, probably over in Ireland, just fizzles out. That's the end of it. Um, so he's a fantastically important character. He certainly would have appeared magical to the average person, absolutely. And he's using what we now regard as that practice of magic um, in his day-to-day -day working, of course he is. And of course, he was one of Arthur's trusted advisors. And bringing us back to Arthur mm -hmm. and something that really is legendary, in my opinion, and, and another telltale sign of the reality of all this is the mysteries of the Holy Grail and the Knights of the Mystic Rose and how mm -hmm. that relates to Arthur and possibly modern Rosicrucians. Can we go into that a little bit? Uh, yes, you can. I, I think the secret link, the, the mystical link, everybody just seems to have completely forgotten. There's a book. Uh, it was written in Catalan, so it's really hard to translate, but mm -hmm. it's in English now, and it's called Tyrant Le Blanc, which is Tyrant the White, and it's about this knight, and it's got all of the stuff in there that you need to know about how knights came about. Uh, and it's a medieval book. It's talking about, it's got a whole section at the beginning about the foundation for the Order of the Garter. Now, the Order of the Garter is, um, I think it's, uh, let's get this, Edward III, um, and he's coming at a period of time when the Templars are disappearing. So everything that goes on from Templars backwards tends to get sucked up into this book. And it's an amazing book, and it tells you about how the Romans started with knights, where Arthur went, what Arthur did. It talks about different capitals, different cities, and what they've done is they've taken uh, what is essentially a fictitious story about knights and then bolted all this factual information on. So it's a, it's a cracking book. If you sort of just, you know, 
you can tell which bits are the legend and which bits are not. If you just look at the background to it, it's almost like, um, you know, like we do now, we fictionalise reality. And that's all they've done. So you can clearly see through it where you've got all these, these threads of reality. Now, that really is the foundation of everything that follows after about 1330, 1340. So if you want to know what's feeding into all the orders that follow that, the Rosicrucians, the, even you could stretch it even further, you could talk about Freemasons, you could talk about Resurrected Order of Druids, uh, to some extent witchcraft, you know, uh, the Resurrected Orders of Templars all over the world. I mean, I'm, I'm literally, you know, some, some of them might want to keep this a secret, you know, so I, I you know, who cares? <laughs> you know, <laughs> go and find that book, you know, Tyrant the Blank, it's brilliant. I, it's quoted in, in, in the book I've written, obviously there's a couple of chunks in there. Uh, it's, it's not an easy read, but it's fascinating. Once you get in there, all of the stuff that follows suddenly starts to make sense because you've got source material. You know, this is what I, I keep banging on about, source material. You, if you've got hold of something that's that old and you can read it and understand it, then, wow, go for it, you know. Um, and again, a lot of the material that you find in these orders that then sort of build up and develop, Rosicrucians, and, uh, et cetera, included, an awful lot of that is coming out of biblical material. Um, so you've got to go and have a look at that. You have to go and just start with your 66 books of the Bible, you know, knock yourself out, read them any order you like, because they weren't in that order when they were written. Just go and pick one, read it, you know. Start with the Gospel of John, it'll absolutely blow your mind, because that really does open up the mystical can of worms. But then we've also got other things nowadays. You've got the Nag Hammadi Library, you've got the Dead Sea Scrolls, you've got Old Testament Apocrypha, you've got New Testament Apocrypha, tons Tons of stuff out there you can go and have a look at. And that all feeds into those movements as well. And chances are you're reading some of the material that probably filtered in to Arthur and his knights at that period of time. And then subsequently, that's what the Templars found when they got to the Middle East. That's, that's what was out there. When they got out to Jerusalem and they got out to the Holy Land and all that, you're in the flow. You know, you're plowing that furrow. That's where you need to be. That's where you need to go. And I'm, I'm astounded now at how much um, Islamic stuff's coming out because they've, they've finally got stuck in and started translating a lot of the stuff that's uh, medieval that's Islamic. And some of those records, uh, you know, keep an eye on that for the next 20 or 30 years. Uh, you'll be astounded uh, because they did keep really, really good records. So if you want to know what's going on in Jerusalem at the time of the Crusades, just go and have a look at their records as well. There's some great stuff in there. Um, that was probably not the answer you expected, but there you go. <laughs> I like it. It's exactly the direction I wanted to go. It wasn't what I expected, but I think it's super significant. You know, stuff like the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was considered myth mm. in modern history, turning into reality, go figure, that reminds me so much of, uh, like, Sir Galahad. Here we have, you know, the most perfect holy knight, at the round table in the 13th century, which wears a white shield and a red cross, which turns out to be the symbol of the Knights Templar. So I think a lot of these things um, are, are, are pretty amazing when you commit yourself to doing the research and investigation. You, you become cognizant of the fact that this has significance. These aren't just stories the Knights of the yeah. Round Table, these have real historical significance. Well, if, if you're going to have a look at um, von Eschenbach's uh, amazing work, Parsifal, which was written in German originally, but if you have a look at Parsifal, 
uh, get a hold of the translation of that. It's quite common, actually. It's quite easy to get a hold of. Percival, uh, go and read that. He actually tells you that the Templars are the guardians of the Grail. And there's even a possibility in that particular work, when you see the Grail procession and you see what's coming through, that could actually be a veiled allusion to the Templar initiation ceremony that they went through. Um, and the position of women in that is quite significant as well. It's, um, most of the people involved in the procession are ladies. You know, the ladies play an enormous part. It's a very balanced story if you read the Arthurian legend. It's nearly always the ladies that they go off and do something on behalf of. You know, it's Guinevere or Lady of the Lake or Lady of the Fountain or, you know, whatever. Whoever it is, it's nearly always the ladies that are the impetus that are pushing this. Um, so, yes, you really need to go off and study it. Um, I mean, things like the Gospel of Thomas, for example, that we've, we've only recently sort of translated and, you know, made a big thing about. I mean, that was around. That was around in the Middle East, you know, in the 1000s, 1100s, 1200s. Uh, chances are they were exposed to that. And a lot of the other alternative Gospels uh, disappeared because the Sufis out there still kept manuscripts and kept records and kept a lot of stuff hidden that they would have been able to talk to the knights about but not necessarily produce written evidence of. Now we've got the written evidence, you know. Um, we in the West have known about the existence of things like the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Judas. We've known these things have existed, but it's only very recently that we've found them actually written down. You know, so the Knights, there's a good possibility they got, got exposed to some pretty amazing stuff out there, you know. Thomas is one of the really good ones, you know. Um, there's that quote, know that which is um, before thy face and that which is hidden will be revealed, you know. Um, this world is a bridge, pass over it, you know, do not build your house here. You start looking at these quotes, and you start thinking, hang on a minute, this is the Templars. You know, they're describing the Templars. You know, Bernard of Clairvaux, the, uh, the Templars' spiritual master, who was there at the very beginning, St. Bernard, uh, he, um, he wrote a lot about the goddess. He had this idea that God was male and female in equal measure. You know, um, Honestly, that's a thread. That's a that's a whole thread that you could just go into. You could bear that. You could bear that in mind when you're reading the book. I mean, the book doesn't necessarily go into that in great details, but if you're aware of that, it, it is a bit illuminating. You know, as I say, get out there and read the source material. Get out there and have a look at some of the biblical stuff, and it'll uh, it'll pop your mind. It really will. Maybe that's a good idea for a book coming up. I don't know. I might tackle that one next. Yeah, it, it would be a great idea. And it really, the intersections of all these, they do blow my mind how you you look for the similarities, not the differences. And, and the Knights of the Round Table seemed to accomplish many great battles. They seemed to never surrender and, unless ordered to do so. And this is also something that is very similar to the Knights Templar, which you know, acted in, in ways that were supernatural almost, and they never seemed to retreat, surrender, or charge without being ordered to do so. And a lot of this has moved forward into modern warfare, and they, they were known as very fierce fighters. Uh, let's, let's move on to something a little bit um, a different, which is in your research and in your investigation, I know that in modern times, a lot of the movies have lent credence to this holy bloodline of Jesus, much like the uh, the Da Vinci Code, Angels and Demons, other movies that are more modern. What have you found, or did you find anything lending any credence to this, and uh, possibly the uh, Order of the Grail, or the, or the Knights Templar? Okay, two things, okay? 
Two things. Um, I'm not really sure how I'm going to approach this. Um, you might get banned for broadcasting this, but mm -hmm. we'll see where we go with I it. I know, it's a tough uh, one. Okay. Um, well, it's going to be tough for, uh, tough for guys to cope with this. Um, Jesus came to earth and he said quite plainly when he was here, I have come to fulfill all of the law. Now, no one's going to argue with that. Everybody in Christianity, that's it. He came to fulfill all of the law. So, what about the law in the Old Testament? I think it's in Deuteronomy, um, where it says, oh, when a man breaks a woman, the man is married to the woman. Okay, what about a virgin birth? Mm. Okay, that means Jesus, effectively, is married to his own mum. Right, okay, at that point, everyone's going to go, ah, you can't say that. Um, not in the sense that these two were a couple. They're not a couple. They legally owe everything to each other. So Jesus never married again. He never went to anybody else. He never had kids. He never reproduced. He never did anything like that at all. There is no bloodline. It's a recent invention. It's a modern invention. And it can't be traced back to anything other than stuff that's been made up at the end of the day. That's my opinion. I'm going to stick to it because at the end of the day, you've got Jesus, you've got Mary, and you've got the evidence of the Gospels to say that they stayed together right to the very end. You know, he's hanging on the cross, he's dying, he turns to John and he says, John, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. You could only do that if you're actually married to the woman. You cannot legally reassign somebody like that. And he's nailed to the cross doing it. And there are so many other examples of that, that the pair of them regarded each other as a couple. And I, I could go on and go on and go on. I could write an entire chapter on it. it it's right throughout the whole thing. And that's one of the biggest secrets of all time because the catholic church has mary mother mary as the queen of heaven now that means she's married to god so i'm not the first to come up with this you know somebody clocked this very early on that's one of the major tenets of the catholic church that mary is queen of heaven and she is effectively thereby the wife of god which follows perfectly when you start looking at other religions at the time that Jesus was around. No worries whatsoever. Of course the God can marry the goddess. No worries whatsoever. It doesn't mean they had kids. It doesn't mean they had nooky. You know, none of that nonsense. Not like we think of it now in the 21st century. They just stayed together till the pair of them, well, till he died. And then eventually she was taken by Joseph of Arimathea. And then she died. So the idea that he has kids and there's a bloodline, no, there isn't one. So there's your first radical thing. Uh, the second ra radical thing is, um, I'm not going to tell you what my name was before I changed it, uh, but I changed it in the 1980s for stage purposes because I used to be a drummer. Mm -hmm. But what I did was, I, so I got hold of my old name anyway, I tried to trace my old name and I, I traced it using various different records all the way back to see where it would go. And it, it led me back ultimately to Scotland and the Western Isles. Uh, but at the same time as doing that, um, I did some television work and we, we got uh, DNA tested to try and see where the DNA took me. So the DNA took me off in the same direction, okay? My old last name is the same name as the Grail Knights. So Wow. There you go. So you, you're, you're interviewing, if you like, by default, de facto, the modern equivalent to the family line that protected the grail. Now, there is a section, I've been really cheeky because I put it in the book, there's a, check, a section in the book that says why the cockerel guards the grail. 
because you always see grail knights with a grail riding on a cockerel. Uh, there are other knights that ride lions and they ride, you know, all sorts of different beasts. But you always see the grail knight riding a cockerel. And there's a reason for that. And it goes back to Scotland. Um, so if people come to me and they say, you know, why have you, how have you got the authority to do this and the other? I can go, it's, it's in me genes, you know, genetically, that's what <laughs> I am. I can't escape it. You know, this clearly this was something even as a teenager that I was I was destined to do. So it literally has become a part of me. And I only discovered that fairly recently. It's only in the 2000s, about 2007, 2008, uh, that piece of information fell into place. So you've got all these people running around out there going, yes, I am, I'm a knight of the grail, you know, and you know, I'm descended from you know, Jesus' great, great, goodness knows what, and this, that, and the other. And I can actually, I can go to my DNA test, and I can go, hang on a minute, I've got it in here, and I've got it in writing as well. So there you go. <laughs> Always stick to your physical evidence. You know, why, aren't, why, why aren't the more archaeologists out there? You know, stick to your physical evidence. Know that which is before thy face, and that which is hidden will be revealed. You know, back to Thomas again. I absolutely love it, and yes, I, I, I don't I, believe I, in coincidence. Yeah. Just, just as a by the way, I've never said that on on a broadcast before, so that's a complete exclusive. That that's going to blow people's minds because I've, I've never admitted to that before. So it just feels the appropriate thing to do. I'm going to go with the flow. Thank you, Mark. Amazing stuff. Absolutely amazing. No coincidence that you are so, you know, involved with this and have so much resolve to get to the bottom of a lot of these things. And you've yep. done so much work from a research and investigative standpoint. And I also herald, uh, obviously, my last name from Scotland in the Western Isles. But I think that this book is absolutely amazing. Uh, the hardcover is absolutely beautiful. And, oh yes. Uh, let's let's uh, as we wrap things up. Let's tell listeners where they can purchase it and how to keep up with everything that you've got going on. Okay. I, well, I love to keep things simple. Anybody that gets the book, you know, please note it's in plain English. There's no technical nonsense in there. You don't have to be able to speak thirty different languages to understand it. It's dead straight really simple so that's the best plug i can give for it it's written for the reader so starting on that basis uh keeping things really simple any of my books i think there's about eight or nine of them out at the moment there's another one due out later in the year anything that i'm publishing at the moment from all the different publishers amazon go and get it from amazon it's all on there just type my name in m-a-r-k-o-l-l-y uh you can you know green man disappearing ninth legion whatever any of the ones you want to type in and this one, go and find it. It's there. Uh, literally, click, three days later, comes through your door. Dead simple. Couldn't be any, any simpler. Again, if you want to try and contact me, you want to get in contact with me, I'm only really on one platform. That's Facebook. Now, Facebook's not a problem. You can come and friend me or send me a message on Messenger, and I'll pick that up in due course. And I, you know, I'm on there every day, so I'll, sooner or later I'll pick up on that. So it's dead easy. You've got product, Amazon, me, You've got Facebook. On you go. Amazing stuff, Mark. I always love talking to you. You're one of my favorite authors, and this has been extremely eye-opening. Uh, can't thank you enough for coming on. Absolute pleasure. And if you need me again, give me a shout. Well, if that doesn't blow your mind, nothing will. Talking about the Polychronicon of Merlin, Joseph, and Arthur by Mark Ollie, someone who traces his bloodlines back to the Knights of the Holy Grail. 
Go to Amazon, pick the book up. You will not be disappointed. It is amazing. And not only is it amazing, it is the real history and archaeology, not just the invention of creative myth, and it reveals the incidents and characters as they really were in chronological order. You really don't want to miss out on this. It is an amazing book. Beautiful in hardback, just as equally impressive in paperback. The Polychronicon of Merlin, Joseph, and Arthur by Mark Ollie. And please go to Patreon, search for Hero Paranormal, and subscribe. There is a ton of content behind the paywall. Until next time, keep your eyes to the skies, feet on the ground, but don't forget to take a look around. Off in my time machine, third eye feeling like an evazine. Blast off, blast off, blast off, blast off. Come blast off in my time machine, third eye feeling like an evazine. Blast off, blast off.